Good evening. Tonight we begin part three of four in a series called Run with Endurance that's built off of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And there are four key elements. The main exhortation in this passage is run the race, run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so the idea that we've been working with over the last couple of weeks has been to run well, to endure, to arrive at the end, to hear the praise of our Father, well done, good and faithful servant. To fight the good fight and to finish the race, as Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4. And so we've looked at four or at two elements up to this point about what is it, how do we run with endurance? What are some key elements of that? The first was being encouraged by the faithful, by the witness of those who have gone before, and particularly by their faith, by their grasp upon God and the future that he's promised, and therefore their their thin their, their their weaker hold on the things and the joys and the pleasures of this world. And then last week we looked at removing hindrances, at removing the weight and the sin that easily burdens us down and keeps us from being able to run well. And tonight we're going to turn to another principle, a third one, a third element on running with endurance, which is simply accepting our course. Accepting our course. So the author says we are to run the race, if you want to open up to Hebrews 12, you can, to run the race that is set before us. Implying that this race, this course, every race has a course, Boston Marathon has a course, that the course that's been set before us is not by accident, and it's not just by chance, but that it's been set before us by a personal, loving Heavenly Father, our Sovereign King, under His divine providence. And the exhortation to run with endurance is not to run the race that we wish we could run or the course that we wish we could have, but it's to run the race that He has set before us. And so this principle accepting our course. Now this this includes especially sufferings and hardships. It's obviously not hard to accept our course when everything is going great, when we're going from strength to strength, from job to job, from promotion to promotion. It's really easy to endure under those circumstances. Remember that endurance is the capacity to bear up or to hold out in the face of difficulty. And so the idea of accepting our course is focused most specifically on those areas of our lives that we would consider hard, Challenging, unwanted, perhaps. The recipients of this letter are suffering in some very real way. We don't know exactly how. In chapter 10, we read that they had already accepted the plundering of their possessions because they knew they had a greater possession. But they're suffering in some way in their context. Verses 4 through 13 of Hebrews 12, which we'll look at a little bit tonight, Talk about things that are unpleasant or painful, these realities in their lives. So we know that this call to run the race that's set before us is a call to accept those things that we wouldn't otherwise like or want, especially the hardships and sufferings that come. And what the author is saying is that this is a key to endurance, to finishing well, because difficulties and hardships in our lives, it's no surprise, are the key things that threaten our faith. If you think about for a moment in your life, 
Perhaps there's something right now that's obvious. Maybe nobody else knows it but you. That's incredibly challenging. Or maybe it was something that happened years ago that deeply affected you and impacted you. It's those things that have the most power in our lived experience to sidetrack us from faith, from running well, and to lead us to giving up, to falling down. And here's what, we're going to get on some sensitive stuff tonight, but here's what I want to say. Even if we can't fully understand how God could be allowing certain things in our lives, this exhortation in Hebrews is about learning to embrace the realities of my world and my experience in faith and in trust and in dependency. And then in that place of acceptance and dependency and trust and faith, even when I can't understand, and perhaps especially when I can't understand, to press on, to run with endurance the race that's been set before me by my sovereign king. If we don't accept our course, then we spend a lot of our time in the what-ifs and if-onlys of life. What if this wasn't in my life right now? If only I had gone this way and not that way. If only this hadn't happened to me or to somebody that I loved. And that path leads us, instead of running to building resentment, to tiring out, to doubting, to resisting, and then eventually starting to lag behind and maybe one day just giving up. And so that's the contrast between accepting our course or protesting. Now, The strategy here for this principle, you can't change the circumstances. The author of Hebrews recognizes that he doesn't have the power to change their circumstances. So what does he do? He goes right toward their perspective in verses 4 through 11. And he starts to address and to challenge their perspective. The standard perspective on life. When things are going well, God is present in my life and he loves me. And I feel good and strong in faith. We overflow with thanksgiving and the favor of God. When I encounter sufferings and difficulties, the response, the natural standard response is God is absent. God isn't here. And that can quickly translate into God doesn't care. God's not really good. God doesn't care for me. So a great example of this is Job chapter 2. After Job loses his servants... His financial, his homestead, his estate, and his sons and daughters in chapter 1. His wife says to him in chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's the standard perspective. Clearly he's not there. Clearly he doesn't care. Clearly he's spiting you. Curse God and die. And this is a very normal normal perspective for us to have in our life in the face of incredibly challenging difficulties and realities. I was talking with somebody recently who's been experiencing 25 years in a row of difficult challenges mentally. A wonderful man who told me that he just at times wants to curse God because of the ongoing nature of the trial. A faithful man. This is the, it's the natural response for us to have. 
But the changed perspective of the author of Hebrews, that he's advocating to those to whom he's writing, drawing from the words that we, were, we heard read out of Proverbs 3, suggests something different. It's radical, it's countercultural. It's a part of the character and being of God that we probably approach with fear and trepidation. And I won't cover it or do justice to it in this one sermon here tonight. But this is what he says. Verses 10 and 11. He draws on Proverbs 3 which talks about the Lord disciplining the one whom he loves. And chastising every son whom he receives. He builds on this metaphor of a father disciplining his son taken out of the Proverbs 3 context which we looked at back in June and he says that actually to the Hebrews he says to to those to whom he's writing he says these sufferings in your life they're, they're not actually signs that God is absent that he's departed and that he doesn't care despite what you may feel but that these are signs of God's fatherly discipline which do two things specifically in this text. One is they legitimize your status as a child of God. And two, it's that they make you more like him. Verses t- verse 10 and 11. He says that God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now let me note something quickly. And I want to, we're going to nuance this a little bit more in a way that I hope is pastorally helpful because I realize we're on sensitive ground. God's explicit and active agency that the author of Hebrews is pointing to in, the, in, the, in, the, in his audience's particular situation and suffering as a father disciplines a son so this the heavenly father is disciplining you in this way and bringing you under his loving care should not in such an explicit way be necessarily universalized to all suffering in every time and every place we know that the that the people to whom he's writing are suffering we don't know exactly what the situation and circumstances of that suffering is exactly And so I want to be careful in saying what I've just said about how the author of Hebrews argues here. Again, it's a countercultural argument for us about the being of God. And say that we don't, without good, solid work, counsel, and wisdom, and theological insight, make the one-to-one correspondence between this argument here and every particular situation that you may have dealt with in your life. So just to, to state that to be clear... But what the author of Hebrews says is radical. He says, you know, God is not absent as you may feel that he is in the difficulties. He's actually lovingly present. And this is the change of perspective that he's trying to work in his hearers. He's working in you. He's working for you. He's working through these difficulties in order to form himself in you more and more, which is your ultimate and greatest good. So, verse 13, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That is, bear up and hold fast under these trials because they're not the sign of God withdrawing his presence from you. They're actually the sign of God in the midst of your life and circumstances working out his loving purposes inside of you. 
It may help us to see that the point of our lives, again on perspective, is not just to be happy. It's not just to be peaceful. It's not just to be content. It's not just to have security and safety. Much as those things mean a lot to us. But the ultimate point of our lives is to glorify our Heavenly Father, our Creator, by becoming like Him in this world. That's the ultimate goal of your life and of mine. And God is most interested in that goal in your life. And therefore, He will use all means to further that goal in your life. To make you like Himself. Including things that are painful, as Hebrews 12 would point us to here. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Problem of Pain, draws from this picture of an artist with his masterpiece. He says, you know, if an artist draws a picture for a little, a little child, he just gives the picture away to the child and doesn't think about it again. But if he's working on his magnum opus, if he's working on the one masterpiece, he'll work at it again and again and again and again, so much so that he'll erase and he'll come back and he'll erase again and he'll do it ten times. And if the canvas could speak back to the artist, the canvas would say, ouch, that hurts. Why are you rubbing on me again like that? Because the artist cares so deeply about the finished product. I think most most of us, if we were honest, would have to say, you know what? It is the most painful and difficult times in my life when I look back that I realize that that's when I grew the most. That's when I learned the most. That's when I was changed the most. That's when I let go of my worldliness more than I ever had before and started to actually taste and see that the Lord is good and begin to experience his love and his life in my life. I know for me, 1996 was a a hard year. I lost my closest friend in a one-car accident on I-40 between Memphis and Little Rock. Three months later, the woman that I was beginning to fall in love with lost her father, Mandy, who was diagnosed with a brain tumor one day and six days later was in a coma. And three months later after that, passed away. It was an accelerated, rapid time of suffering and of trial and of loss in my life where I look back and say, I grew more in those several months than I've ever grown since. God was using those realities to shape himself in me. I just met a guy this last week who's going through an incredibly difficult situation in his personal life who was just also in a head-on car collision two weeks later after he found out about that. And he has had this response of God is actually beginning to speak to me. He's, He's loosening certain idols from my life and he's starting to unravel some things inside of me. It was a beautiful picture in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the hardship of how God will often work in these things. So what's the key here for running with endurance? The key here is accepting that what has been, is, and will be, our course, that is, is in some way, and sometimes in a more mysterious fashion, and sometimes in a much more straightforward fashion, a part of the course that has been set for me by my loving Heavenly Father. Now, to acknowledge this in too strong a way is to attribute evil to God, right? Something that we cannot do as his faithful followers. God hates evil. God is perfectly good and perfectly loving. But the error on the other side is to make God too distant from our circumstances and thereby to diminish his providence, sovereignty, and his power. While it is true that a good and loving God cannot be the author of evil in our lives, it's also and equally true that an all-powerful, sovereign God, whom Paul says is working together all things for the good of those who love him, must be sovereign over every last detail of your life 
and my life. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And this is a tension then that must be embraced by the faithful. We're doing our best to know and to love God as God has revealed himself to be. And when we push too far in one direction at the expense of the other, we tend to distort God and to diminish our own humanity and to weaken our ability to endure. Let me continue for just a moment on these two extremes. Both of these things that I've just described are important for the work of endurance in our lives. When we suffer in any way when we, we rem- and remember that God is against evil, that he hates wickedness and violence, that he wants to liberate us from situations where we're being taken advantage of, and that he sent his son into the world. He went to great lengths to purge this world of evil, to promise a new day when there would be no more pain and sorrow and suffering. These thoughts can rightly encourage us in the moment of hardship to fight on, to press forward, to run well. And in the midst of those moments of hardship and difficulty, we rightly lament before the Lord. We weep over the brokenness of the world and over its impact in our lives and the lives of those we love. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. We protest right along with the psalmist that the world shouldn't be this way. And we appeal to God's love and goodness and his love for life and his hatred of evil to intervene and to change these circumstances that are otherwise seemingly against his purposes and will as expressed most clearly at the cross of Jesus, right? This is an important part of running well, of enduring to the end. Authenticated even by Jesus himself, who in John chapter 11 weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Who at the end of his life laments before the onlookers with the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 verse 1. So we need to affirm this, and it's important to our running well. And to not do this, to not affirm the importance of lament, of weeping, of our our wrestling with these realities as they enter our lives out of some robotic submission to the sovereignty of God is to lose our humanity and also to lose touch with an important and huge part of the character of God as he's made himself known to us. We must protest and lament. And yet... To bring this tension together, this text and what it teaches pushes us in a different but equally important direction in our lives. In the midst of the chaos, to know and to trust that God our Father oftentimes can and does take up and use and even mysteriously allow the suffering and hardship in our lives in order to grow us and to mature us and to make us more like Him. This helps us to bear up and to endure as well. That God is at the deepest and most profound level behind the course of my life. He is the architect of my life. Who takes a mix of materials, some lovely, some awful and painfully difficult. To build me into someone who knows him, who, who reflects his glory into the world. And to yield in my life in whatever circumstance that I might find myself in. To yield to his mysterious hand and his fatherly discipline while it can at times be excruciatingly difficult, is to find genuine peace and strength and to learn invaluable lessons for life. 
Our suffering then becomes not the breeding ground for unbelief and anger, but the soil out of which arises beautiful faith and faithful and authentic witness into full bloom. So these two responses, protesting and yielding, can coexist closely to one another because both arise out of a heart of faith. Remember Jesus protesting with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, take this cup from me. And yet then at the same time yielding to his will, not my will but yours be done. Then later, as I already mentioned, crying out with great lament on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Protest, lament, followed by into your hands, I commit my spirit. They're both there. They're both real. They're both faithful. And they're both necessary as we seek to run with endurance the race that's been marked out for us. The author of Hebrews pushes us Tonight, strongly in the direction of yielding. Yielding to the sovereign hand of God at work in our lives. He said in chapter 2 that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He believes that God the Father works in this way to bring us to greater degrees of sanctification and holiness in our lives. Which means then that these situations are not as they may feel on the surface against God's character of love and goodness, but rather expressions of it as he forges himself in us through suffering. Let me close with giving you just three quick examples. First is the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times he says, I pleaded with the Lord that he would take this thorn out of my, the thorn that was in my flesh away. The thorn in his flesh, which he refers to as a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now this starts to get really tough and confusing for us. But this is what the Bible says. This is what Paul writes. And his, God's response to Paul in that situation of protest is, no, but here, let me say something, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul, being sanctified through that experience, goes on to say, therefore I will glory in my weaknesses because they show the strengths of Christ. Or consider the perspective from Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' widow from 1758. Edwards had just been called to Princeton to become the principal of Princeton. He leaves in January in the middle of winter, leaves his wife and children behind in Northampton so they can come join him in the summer when it's more reasonable to travel. He does a sensible thing and gets inoculated for, for smallpox that goes south. On March 22nd, 1758, he dies. Sarah Edwards writes to her daughter who survives her father who lives in Princeton, her daughter Esther, these words. Oh, my, dairy, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Esther would never read those words. 
because she died two weeks after her father and left two orphaned children behind. She was a widow from just the year before. So Sarah experienced that grief and heartache after writing these words as well. But a perspective of yielding, of trusting. And and lastly, someone that some of you know, Jeff Quinn, a man who was in our congregation from 2009 until he died in 2013 from sarcoma. Struggled with this battle with cancer and went to be home last summer. And some words that he said when he preached here were this. He said, the most important lesson that I'm learning is that I gain peace in my trials when I see the nail-pierced hands that control them. I'm able to embrace God's control over my life to the extent that I see his passionate love for me, to the extent that I see his extravagant love for me, to the extent that I see his costly love for me. I'm able to embrace his control over my trials. And then he said this, each of us sooner or later, we're going to hit the wall. Where are you going to turn? Whether it's with raised hands or raised fist, I implore you to turn to God. Only take the time to behold the one that you're addressing. Take the time to look at the one you're speaking to. Those wounds were taken for your healing. You see where Jeff went in the midst of this wrestling between protest and yielding, and we walked this road with him as a community. He went to the love of God. See those nail-pierced hands. Consider the one to whom you're turning. Whatever circumstance may make you think or feel about God and his presence in your life, nothing speaks more clearly and more pointedly than the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jeff knew that beyond the shadow of a doubt, and he witnessed that. He was amazing in a witness to the end. Of finishing well. Enduring well. Because he knew the deep depth of the love that God had for him in Jesus. That enabled him to yield. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to tonight. He's not absent. He's present. And he's present as a loving father. Yield to him. That you might run with endurance. Amen.